Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I am your host, Nick Webster. Delighted to welcome Dr. Mike Clark to the show today. He's got a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a master's in sports psychology, and currently is the sports psychologist at the University of Arizona. Mike, welcome to The Bear and the Ball. Thanks so much, Nick. I'm happy to be chatting with you today. I know we had a few technical difficulties, but it looks like we're finally on the same page. So maybe the stars are aligning. So let's get straight into this mental performance. As coaches, and I'm a coach myself, we spend so much time on the tactical and technical aspects of the game. And the mental side of the game is, is, is pushed to the side. And, and I think sometimes it's pushed to the side because not one size fits all. And when you've got a squad of 20 players and you want to get something across that's very important mentally, you know that that message probably isn't going to land collectively and you have to do that individually. And as coaches, we don't have time to do that individually. Give me the answer, please, to how we can rectify that situation. <laughs> well, if I had the answer, um, I'd be a very, very rich man and <laughs> there'd be a lot of sports psychologists. No, it's a great question and I think we're getting really close at, at finding the answer. I think it's a multifaceted approach that we're talking about here. It is both uh, the individual can seek any kind of services from a sports psychologist. I think there's team programming that can be impactful. And I think that a lot of good sports psychology happens to and through the coach. So the more aligned the coach and the provider are, the more um, streamlined the messaging. So I, I don't know that there's one perfect approach, but I think that when we hit it from multiple angles, uh, good things tend to happen. So what do you think is the most effective funnel to get the message across? Is it you coming in as a as an expert and working collectively or individually? Or is it a case of you training the coach so that he or she can deliver their message on that collective or individual basis? I've seen it work both ways, to be honest. I think that for coaches who are, are coachable themselves and they're interested in finding proactive ways to improve performance, the consultation piece is massive. So how can we shape uh, narratives? How can we influence what the coach is helping the, the players to understand from a perspective standpoint or from a, from a thought management standpoint? But in other organizations, the, the coach says, hey, um, we have experts in sports nutrition and S&C and athletic training. So I'm going to bring in this expert in sports psychology and they're going to be a member of our staff and you're going to listen to them. And I'm going to take care of the X's and O's. So really, no matter if it's the high school, college, club or pro level, I've seen organizations shape it out in, in different ways. Now, when we, when we look at that mental aspect of the game – it really feels like an intangible. When I look at uh, mm -hmm. a technical skill, oh, he passed that ball well. Or yes, uh, and, I, and I'm coming to this from a soccer background. That's that's my background. We're a soccer show. Yes, the back four's working as a unit. You can see them move up collectively. The mental side of the game, though, you can't really see it. You can't touch it. Maybe you can feel it. Certainly as a coach, sometimes you can smell it. <laughs> How do, we, how do we measure it so that they're... Because I think, I think in, in, in this day and age, we're all so desperate for that 
Yes, I can. I, I see it. Uh, that 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 tangible uh, uh, moment where you can touch and feel, and the mental aspect of the game is, like I said, it's an intangible. How do we how do we get some measurement out of that? There are a couple really nice ways that we're we're doing it now. So the first thing is just like purely cognitive performance data. And what that looks like is objective data that can be collected. This isn't your typical self-report, like, I feel anxious sometimes, or uh, no, n- none of that. Uh, but there are some, some assessments out there now that uh, test reaction time, spatial awareness, decision-making, and all of that goes into how your brain performs under pressure when it matters, which sounds a lot like mental performance, right? Um, Other things, HRV data and other biofeedback uh, mechanisms are coming out now, Uh, brainwave stuff that can be really helpful away from the pitch. We don't have our players wear it when they're on the field, of course, but uh, that we're getting closer there. And I think lastly, behavioral observation is kind of the bread and butter of the sports psychologist who's on the sideline. So if we're working on composure with a player and you notice that they get beat in a drill three times out of five, how do they appear? Are, is their head down? Are they moping around? Are they upset? Or do they behaviorally look a certain way? So again, the, these are the ways that I look at it, but I think we're, we're still a, a young field, so we're still trying to really optimize that. Not to be a Debbie Downer or anything, um, but I know from working with teenagers and particularly teenage boys as soon as you mention data their eyes glaze over and it's not very sexy so how do how do we frame it so that you know these these young these young men who are full of vim and vinegar um, <laughs> can take this this and i don't want to use the word data again because that's not the sexy term but this information on board and ingest it and go forth and use it. We can view it as a performance advantage. That's the way that I do it with my teams. And fortunately, not all of the teams out there are using cognitive performance data. And so it's it's a very easy thing to say, hey, think about your friends at other university teams, other pro teams. Are they doing this? And most times the answer is no. And so it's like, great. We're not trying to torture you with this. We're trying to, to find information so we can better optimize your performance when it matters. So you're right. Data, not a fun word. Uh, but when we say this information is going to help us be better, uh, it starts to feel a little uh, more palatable, I think. So let's delve into the, these intangibles, these these mystical uh, components that turn average athletes into superstars. And we'll, we'll start with the C word, confidence. How does, or how do you go about building confidence? And, and what, does, what does it look like and what can it achieve? Mm, that's one of the topics that everyone wants to talk about. And first off, I like to think about confidence as the sprinkles on the cupcake. I think we can still have a cupcake without the sprinkles. We can still have solid performance, even if we don't feel, you know, uber confident. Uh, but it, I think, has its place at uh, at the dessert table, right? So that that's my little precursor. How do we train it? Well, I think the two biggest parts of that pie, or I guess that cupcake, if we're going with this <laughs> metaphor, uh, 
you know, is number one, the credibility of your voice. And then really number two, recent performances, recent training, um, really factual evidence that things are heading in the right direction. But really how I get into it is building the credibility of the voice. Do you believe what's being told to you in your own head? Because if you don't, uh, then either you're lying to yourself and we're not really capable of doing that, uh, or you just kind of feel lost and you're not going to have a, a true north in, in your own mind. So those are my first two big buckets. We could we could spend an hour talking about either one of them, but uh, really from a surface standpoint, that, that's where I first get into confidence. So when confidence goes, because we know sometimes it is fleeting, Mm-hmm. What are the what are some of the techniques you can use as a psychologist, and and you could perhaps let the coaches know who are listening to this show what they can do to help their athletes regain their confidence. Have them check the facts. What is true in this moment about you as a person or you as a performer? That's where I always go to first. Uh, and be ready for the answer because there's probably going to be a mixed bag of of answers. Well. The weight room has been really consistent. My sleep has been solid. Um, my, my speed training is coming along. And from a technical standpoint, I'm good except for that one thing I'm working on. Oh, great. Now can we simplify and lock it? So I think check the facts is, is the biggest one. And then, you know, I think there are the kind of more intangibles like what makes you feel like you? And are you doing those things? For instance, are you still connecting with your friends and family? Are you still listening to the things you want to listen to? Are you still engaging in hobbies outside of soccer? Um, but again, th- those are some rabbit holes. I don't, I don't know that we want to dive too deep down in, in this moment. So are you saying then it's as simple as creating your own checklist? It can be. And so... If, if, if I am if I am going to go to my you know I'm, I'm, I'm about to go coaching uh, high school high school kids and I'm gonna tell them today about this this chat I'm having with you and how you know confidence comes and goes and that a checklist can be created what, what are the things I'm looking for the, the the student athletes to to mark on their checklist what kind of what kind of categories are we what kind of subjects are we looking at? For sure. So I, I think about the foundational elements of the list. So your pre-performance routines, um, the structures and habits that you've built in. So are you getting to the locker room with enough time to give yourself time to get dressed and so you're not still tying your shoes when coach is talking? So is the pre-performance routine good? Uh, are you able to understand what's being asked of you? Um do you have time to troubleshoot that? And what's true for you right now? I mean, if we just have a real simple checklist of those four things, I think we're getting really close to uh, giving confidence a chance to live. So within that checklist, it, there seems to be some movement towards imagery as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that night before the game, these are the things that I need to do to be successful. Describe imagery and and how, as a coach and as an athlete, we can we can impart that to to our to our players. So this is one of the skills that I work most with the teams on the road. So if I'm traveling with anyone, it's going to be the night before 
or even the morning of if it's an late afternoon, evening kind of competition. And so you're absolutely heading down the right path with this. How do I view it? Well, we want to have the image in your brain be as clear and vivid as possible. We want it to be in live time, so not sped up, not slowed down. It's not a highlight reel. Um, and we really want the outcome to be as optimal as possible. Uh, optimal is slightly different than positive. Uh, you know, the positive would be, like, well, I'm 100% uh, successful on all of my shots on goal. Well, okay, but does that ever really happen? No, but what's optimal? Well, I have a free kick and I put it exactly where I need to put it and my teammate comes in and makes the play that they're supposed to play. Can I see that through my eyes? Um, and so those are my big mental buckets of it. And then, of course, as many sensory inputs that we can bring in, the better. Um, can you smell the grass? Can you feel the shoes on your feet? Um, you know, can you even taste kind of what it tastes like when you're really working hard and you have some of that lactate in your mouth? Um, the more senses we can onboard, the more real that's going to be. And in terms of training imagery, what kind of what kind of um, tools do you use to develop that practice and then to turn it into a habit? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I first like to break it down into something visual that we can look at. Uh, so I'm a little spoiled with some of the teams I work with and, and our uh, photography group and marketing group will have lots of pictures and audio and, and video. And so I really like to say, hey, he, here's like the, the picture of our field from half. You can see a goal. It's clear. Have that on your phone, on your iPad, whatever, and and onboard that information. Look at it. Really study it so that if you close your eyes, you can picture where, where out of bounds is, where the flags are, where the, where the goal is, where the stands are, the trees. And really from there, what I really like to do is help my athletes build in cues, especially when they play at home, so that they know, okay, I always like the goalkeeper, for instance, uh, one of them always likes to look at the opposing uh, corner when they're resetting so they can totally just get wide on the field after you know, something happens. Um, and so in their visualizations, they're able to see that flag as clear as day. Uh, so again, have a visual and then build it in five minutes every day. Close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, really see it, and, and just start building can you give me any case studies where you know that imagery has worked? So one of my favorite examples, it is uh, this high school discus thrower I was working with like six-ish years ago. I was embedded at a high school before all of this. And she was returning from injury. Uh, she had some kind of shoulder thing. I won't stay in my lane. I don't exactly know what it was. Uh, but it really impacted her ability to have a lot of off-season training. And so we really spent time for her to see through her own eyes what it was like for her to be the state meet the week or the year before. And we really started to build that in so much so that she could feel the disc in her hand. She could feel how her body felt as she moved through space, the wind going through her hair as she's spinning. Um, really, really clear. And... Uh, the, the coolest thing is we 
we we started to onboard some like weather even because we knew that it was going to be like late spring when she had to qualify. So like, can you smell that like muddy grass kind of smell? You maybe you can think of it now. And it, it was it was one of those things that I was standing behind, you know, where I'm supposed to stand, and 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 I watched this whole thing go out, and I'm like, this is kind of how I saw it go down, you know, and. We, we had planned for her to, to really nail it in the back three uh, throws. She gets six. Um, and I think it was on four or five that she actually threw the school record, qualified for the state meet, was on the podium a week later. And it was really cool to debrief with her, like right around graduation time, actually. She came up and she was like, that was weird. Like, that that's what it looked like. And uh, I look back on it fondly because it's not one of those, like, Olympic game moments. It wasn't some big thing that anyone would ever know. Um, but anecdotally, I know in my bones that that, that made it an impact. Wow, that's a great story. Um, and it kind of leads me to my, my next thought. Um, so when we're sometimes coaching, when we're playing, playing against teams that maybe aren't quite as uh, of the quality that we are, but they hang around and you give them hope. And I'm a huge, huge believer in if you give people hope, the next step from hope is belief. Mm. And when teams or individuals get belief, I think it's the most powerful substance in the universe. Talk to me about that, that the, the, the chemical process, the chemical mental process from hope to belief. How does that happen? Well, I think a lot of it happens to do with buy-in and bonding that happens. And really what you're talking about is a, a great locker room, a great leader, great coaches. That That's where I would think that this would even start. Hey, can I give you a little bit of hope? And then we come together. And and we, we literally know that when we're more bonded as people, uh, we're more likely to pull for them. Uh, we're also more likely to work hard for the people that we feel like we have a connection with. And as that starts to happen, um, we start to be just in sync. There seems to be this great harmony and connection. Uh, everyone wants to talk about, you know, can we be really composed? Can we be confident? But I think when things like harmony and gratitude, joy, fun, when those start to come in, with a group that's really cohesive, we start to see some really big things happen. Uh, so really at the neural level, we're just bonding like we would with any other relationship. Well, let me talk to you then about the, the specific moment in the game though, when as, as a coach and as players, maybe there's adversity, you know, maybe there's a struggle, uh, things aren't going your way. And then there's that moment and you can, honestly, I know I can feel it where you go, whoa, something's happening here. And, and I've, you know, as, as a, as a coach, I've often found myself going, can you feel it? Can you feel it? Something's happening. Can you feel it? Um, are they feeling it or is it just me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. I think, you know, they're feeling it. Uh, there's probably a, a spike in uh, adrenaline. Um, there might even be a spike in blood cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone uh, that can cause us to have a bit of a fight flight response. 
but but in a, in an effective way, right? So we're getting keyed up. So yes, physically, I think your players are feeling it just like you, uh, just like the parents, just like the fans. I, I think that's really happening. But I think what you're really asking about is like like how does that happen and, and why does it happen? And I think it's because in that moment something clicks and the group of people who've committed to each other and worked really hard together suspend the disbelief that something bad could happen if if they give it all and it fails. There's this fear of what happens if I lay it all out there and it doesn't go my way. Um, will I look like a fool? Will I, you know, will people laugh at me? Will I be ashamed of myself? Will it all not be worth it? And so when we are able to suspend that fear and just truly believe that something is actually capable of happening, um, I think it actually has a better chance of happening. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like I'm talking in a circle here, but that, that's how I view what you're asking about. Okay, so that's an organic thing. I mean, yeah. it, it, it just happens. But it's so powerful that I want to make it happen. So can you make it happen just through your own, through, through a, a coach's own willpower or for a captain's own willpower? Can they make it happen? Or, or are we just, you know, at, at the hands of the gods on that particular day? You know, I, I'd like to think that we have a chance to replicate some version of it. Um, you know, I, I think that you see it sometimes when a leader steps up and he says or she says, um, I, I, I know that you're able to do this. I've seen you do it. Now do it. And and, and they, they challenge their athletes. But it, it's about bringing in, not calling out. Right. And so I, I think as as you see leaders call people in and say, I know you're better than this. I got your back on this. You can do this. I'm going to do this. You start to really see it shape out. Uh, you're also kind of talking about flow, which is a, a pretty heavily researched topic, at, at least at this point. And there's like eight or nine different facets of it that I haven't memorized. But but the big one is that our ability level is just below what's needed to complete the task uh, so that we actually level up into our skill and it's like intriguing to us and we're just stretching uh, and, and, and we're capable of achieving it. Boredom happens when our skill level's high and what's needed is uh, much lower than that. Um, we lose hope and we don't have any motivation when our skill level's a certain level. And what's needed to complete the task supersedes that. But when it's really, really quite close, uh, we start to achieve a flow state. And so that could also be part of it. So if we're organically trying to create it, we want to challenge our athletes to be just a little bit more than they have been so far um, and help them to believe that they can do that. And you mentioned that you mentioned challenge now a couple of times. What's the language we need to use as coaches where it isn't that threatening challenge, that threatening demand. I mean, is 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 there a special language to use? Well, the thing that I learned from my first sports psych mentor way back in the day was this concept of being demanding without being demeaning, and and so for me, that's kind of the boundary. So if a, if a coach ever asks me, hey, I want to say this, 
you know, and I don't really have a good example that comes to mind, but I want to say this. What do you think? If, if it's going into the world of, of being demeaning, I mean, you might get a small like gain out of the, the player, but at what cost? Uh, what, what kind of long-term uh, rifts are we creating? But if, if you're being demanding of a person uh, while showing respect and dignity to them as a person, I mean, we live in a, a sports high-performance world, right? I mean, that, some of that is, is okay. Um, and so that's, that's at least my surface answer to that. I mean, I think that's pretty nuanced. Though. Um, you, you mentioned that challenge without demeaning. How do you go about winning back an athlete that may have just turned around because you have demeaned them in, in, in public or in private and, and, and you've kind of lost them? How do you, how do you win them back? Mm. Well, if it's if it's a public kind of thing, um, I think an apology could go a long way. I understand the power dynamics, and and the player is inherently power down from the coach. The coach oftentimes doesn't want to eat their words and apologize. But if it's a public shaming, yeah, I, I think an apology, even behind closed doors, could go a long way. Um, but but really. If it's not this deep shaming that we're talking about and it's more of just, hey, I've, I've been losing this player because we're kind of going in opposite directions 1% at a, at a time, um, meet them where they're at. Just one of the oldest coaching you know, idioms, I think, it reigns true. you know, And so often there's so much going on away from sport that – we may not be privy to and we may not think of it if we don't just say, hey, uh, I've noticed that you're coming r- right at practice and you're leaving the, the minute it's over. It wasn't like that the past couple of years. Anything going on? And they might tell you exactly what, what's going on. Dr. Mike Clark, mental performance is a skill. How can uh, people get hold of you? You know, I think uh, the world of social media makes it easy enough to connect. Um, I'm fairly active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you pop in a little Google search with my name and Sports Psych, it probably pops up. Um, Maybe we can link my email or my website somewhere along the way. Uh, But yeah, always happy to connect. The world of Sports Psych is is broad. And um, I think there's a lot of room for us to, to connect. Sports Psych constantly evolving. And for more on CalSouth, please visit us on Facebook. Go to CalSouth.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. I am Nick Webster, your host of Bearing the Ball. We'll be back next week.